Amen. Thank you, Baba. I heard a story in fellowship group on Wednesday about a pastor in a very large, a very progressive city where it was not uncommon for people from all walks of life and all backgrounds to attend his church, including people from within the LGBTQ plus community. One particular time, a lesbian couple was attending this pastor's church and eventually requested a meeting to talk with the pastor about church membership. And they said something like this, Pastor, we, we love this church, we want to join, but as you know, we're in this relationship. Is that going to be a problem? The pastor very wisely replied, you're asking the wrong question. The, the right question is not, is this relationship a problem? The right question is, who is Jesus? If Jesus is who He said He was, if Jesus is who we preach, then He demands absolute allegiance. You must submit everything to Him. Your relationships, your sexual identity, your finances, your children, your job, your dreams, your aspirations, your fears, your hopes, your everything. If you agree that Jesus really is the sinless Son of God who demands absolute allegiance from the world, then that includes your relationship with each other. No matter how much you feel you love each other, if Jesus is who He says He is, you must turn away from what Jesus calls sin if you want to follow Him. If you disagree with me about Jesus, then you're welcome to attend this church as often as you'd like. But to truly be one of us, you must submit to who He is. Who is Jesus? I think that pastor was right. I think that, that the bigger, more important question underneath all the questions that we could ask about this or that behavior or relationship or thing that the world tolerates, underneath all of those questions, indeed the most important question that we could ask ourselves today is, who is Jesus? If He is who He claimed to be, then all the other questions begin to slowly fall into place. They might be difficult, but they begin to fall into place. If he's not who he claims to be, then all the other questions really don't matter. If you were with us last week in Matthew's gospel, 
We found Jesus approached by some would-be disciples, and, and Jesus had the audacity to demand absolute allegiance from his followers. This morning in Matthew's gospel, we're going to see why Jesus does that. Jesus demands absolute allegiance from the world because of who he is. Jesus demands absolute allegiance from the world because Jesus has absolute authority in the world. That's the big idea I want us to see from Matthew's gospel this morning. If you're not already there, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 23. If you've been with us over the past few weeks, you might remember that these two chapters, Matthew chapters 8 and 9, are broken up into three sets of three miracle stories. And each set of miracle stories teaches us something about Jesus. And in these three stories this morning, we're going to see something about who Jesus is. In all three stories, if you heard when the text was read earlier, in all three stories, Jesus performs a miracle simply by speaking words. In all three stories, the response to the miracle power of Jesus is, is awe and fear and, and trembling. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus has absolute authority in the world, and He wants you and I this morning not only to be stunned by that authority, but to submit to it. With God's help, I want to show you from this text three dimensions where Jesus has absolute authority from these three miracle stories. Number one, I want you to see that Jesus has absolute authority over the natural world. Jesus has absolute authority over the natural world. Look with me beginning in verse 23. And when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. You've probably heard before that the Sea of Galilee was kind of notorious for these massive storms. There's mountain ranges around the sea and the, the cold air from the mountains coming over, the, the warm air over the Sea of Galilee would often cause these massive storms kind of out of nowhere to appear on the Sea of Galilee. A particular word that Matthew uses for the storm in this text is the word seismos, from which we get our word seismology. It's usually referring to something like an earth earthquake, which gives you a, a hint at what this storm was like. This is a massive storm, such a massive storm that, that the boat is threatening to break up, that water is beginning to fill this boat. Now, we know the full story, but perhaps if you were there in that moment as the storm is beginning to fill up the water, you might take comfort by the fact that Jesus is on the boat with you until you look over and you notice that he's fast asleep. Look at the text, verse 24, but he, Jesus, was asleep. Now think about that for a second. 
Thunder, lightning, rain, waves, screaming disciples on a boat, Jesus asleep. Perhaps as rain is pouring down on his face and water is drenching his robe, Jesus is fast asleep. I love this picture of Jesus. This gives us a glimpse into one of the key truths that Christians believe about Jesus. He is truly human. You remember the night before what Jesus has been doing. He's up through the entire night healing people. We don't know what kind of emotional or or physical toll that might have taken upon Jesus, but, but even just the lack of sleep has got him to this point of complete and utter exhaustion that he's able to sleep in the middle of a storm. The trip to Anaheim a couple of weeks ago, we had one particular flight that was quite difficult and I really wanted to sleep, but I couldn't because the, the plane's kind of wobbling in the air, you know, and shaking a little bit, and you're just waiting for the mass to drop and everybody to start screaming. I just couldn't sleep because of the, the, the storm that was going on outside as we're flying in the air. Jesus is asleep in a boat in the middle of a storm. He's truly human, gets exhausted, tired like we do, but he's also completely at peace you ever been so overwhelmed with, with grief or anxiety or fear about something you can't even fall asleep? Jesus is completely at peace. The way some of you are right now enjoying a good little nap as we get started this morning, that's okay. We're glad you're here. Now, perhaps for a while, the disciples are are trying to to take matters into their own hands. I mean, after all, four out of the 12 are professional fishermen. It's their job. They're used to the Sea of Galilee. This is their territory. But eventually, it gets outside of their control. They realize, we're not going to make it through this storm. And so, verse 25, they went and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And Jesus said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? In our English translation, it says, O you of little faith, five words there. In the original language, it's only one word. Jesus literally calls them little faiths little faiths. Why are you afraid, little faiths? And that's a perfect word for the disciples in this moment. Jesus doesn't call them zero faiths. Now, if they had zero faith, they wouldn't come to Jesus, would they? It's really easy sometimes to give the disciples a bad rap, but notice in the middle of a storm, they go up to a man that's sleeping, and they say, will you save us from the storm? We're perishing. Have you ever turned to somebody in the middle of a storm and said, can you fix this, please? There's faith there. They're not zero faiths, but they're not great faiths either. Why? Because they're terrified. And some of the other gospels, they ask, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? Doubting perhaps His power and His love. Jesus calls them little faiths. Just moment for those of you in this room that may not consider yourself Christian, followers of Jesus. 
perhaps for you, the hang-up for you is you just don't know if you can have enough faith. I just don't know that I can believe all of that. That's a lot. That's hard. Can I just encourage you, friend, to be a follower of Jesus? You don't need great faith. You just need faith in the right place. You need faith in a great person. A little faith in the right person is infinitely better than strong faith in the wrong person or thing. So all the little faiths here in this room, let me encourage you. Jesus loves his little faith people. And he does not disown us even when our faith is weak. And yet, Christian, Jesus wants your faith to grow. He does make it a point to kind of rebuke the disciples gently, doesn't he? He's not okay with their faith being little. He wants their faith to be strong. And often what Jesus uses to grow our little faith is the very storms where we often doubt him. Isn't that interesting? Jesus uses this storm to grow the disciples' faith. Look at verse 26, second half. Jesus rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Literally, the text says there was a a mega calm. The scene went from a mega storm to a mega calm. There's no transition. You think about when a a major storm rolls through, it just kind of slowly fades away, and the sun kind of slowly comes out. Can you just imagine, just envision, incredible, dark, dreary, chaotic situation to calm? complete and utter calm. What would that be like to see? It's no wonder that the disciples in verse 27 marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Now, in this first miracle story, we're often taught this story And we're taught lessons about how to survive the storms of life, that sort of thing. That's not necessarily wrong or unhelpful, but Matthew wants us to understand the major point of this story is not your storms. The major point of this story is the storm silencer. His name is Jesus. Matthew wants you to see that Jesus has absolute authority over the natural world. Every tornado, every hurricane, every ray of sunshine, every wave on the ocean, every drop of dew on the grass in the morning, every bumblebee buzzing around your flower bed, every crop that's harvested, every breath of oxygen, everything in this natural world is controlled by Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. That is incredibly good news if you belong to him. He has absolute authority over the natural world. But what about our great enemy, Satan? If you know your Bible or have been 
around the church for any length of time, you know that Satan has been wreaking havoc in the natural world ever since our first parents were expelled out of the Garden of Eden. Is there any comfort in Jesus having authority over the natural world as long as Satan and his demons are on the loose? That's where the second dimension of Jesus' authority is so comforting. Number two in our text, second story teaches us that Jesus has absolute authority over the supernatural world. Jesus has absolute authority over the natural world, what we can see, and over the supernatural world that we can't see. Look at verse 28 in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. The storm is over. There's calm. Jesus and his disciples arrive to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, and two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. Now, let's just stop for just a second and talk about this region. There should be a map on the screen for you to look at. Many scholars believe that this miracle occurred in this little town in the right corner, bottom right corner of your screen called Gergesa. Uh, it's mentioned in some manuscripts. It might be mentioned in the footnote, uh, depending upon your translation, but no gospel writer mentions this town explicitly. Now, you might notice as well that the map there, the box, the inset part on the left uh, refers to a place called, called Gerasenes. And that's the place that Mark 5 and Luke 8 mention when they tell this story. But Matthew, and Matthew 8, verse 28, refers to the country of the Gadarenes. So you've got Gergesa, Gerasenes, Gadarenes. And the skeptic looks at that and he says, aha, contradictions. I knew it. You can't trust the Bible because the Bible is filled with contradictions. Did Jesus heal these demon-possessed men in the Gadarenes or the Gerasenes? The gospel writers can't agree. Therefore, you must not be able to trust them. Interesting. Let me ask you a question. If somebody asked you today at lunch, where do you live? What would you say? If I'm talking to somebody completely unfamiliar with this area, and they ask me, where do you live? I would usually say, I live near Virginia Beach. If I'm talking to a Virginian, I'll usually say, I live in Hampton Roads. But if I'm talking to a peninsula person, you know, the peninsula people, I'll say, I live in Pocosin. Let me ask you a question. Are those contradictions? Of course not. We talk like that all the time, don't we? we? We refer, maybe you refer to a large city near where you live. If, if you're from some podunk town a hundred miles from Chicago, you might just tell people, I live near Chicago, right? We do that sort of thing all the time. That's exactly what the gospel writers are doing in this story. Mark and Luke refer to the region. Matthew refers to Gadara, which is the largest city in that region. This isn't a contradiction. This is just the way that normal people speak. 
In fact, I think this goes above and beyond to actually prove the trustworthiness of the Bible, because this is exactly what you would expect if normal people wrote down the stories as they experienced them. Well, people, well, skeptics will point to another alleged contradiction in this story, because if you read in Mark and Luke, they'll refer to one demon-possessed man. Matthew mentions two. Isn't that interesting? Was there one demon-possessed man or two demon-possessed men? Is this another contradiction? Uh, let me ask you again. If, if you were out flying somewhere and at an airport, let's say Atlanta or Chicago or Dallas or LAX, you run into Tom Hanks and his assistant. And there he is in the flesh, Tom Hanks, and you go up and you shake his hand, you get a picture with him, and you go home and tell your friends, I met Tom Hanks today. Oh, you technically met his assistant too. But is it dishonest? Is it a contradiction to just say, I met Tom Hanks? No, it would be a, it would be a dishonest if you say, I met Tom Hanks and he was traveling alone. There was nobody else with him. But to refer to the dominant person and a pair of two people, we do that sort of thing all the time. And so too to the gospel writers. So Matt or Mark and Luke, when they tell this story, they refer to the demon-possessed man who does this, has this incredible response to the, the healing power of Jesus. In Mark and Luke, when Jesus heals one of the demon-possessed men, he agrees to be a disciple of Jesus. He says, I want to go back across the sea with you. I'm going to follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. He was the dominant personality. He was the man who really stood out. But in Matthew's account, Matthew is not so much interested in the response of these two demon-possessed men. He's focusing on the authority of Jesus over the supernatural world. So this is not a contradiction. This is just the way that human beings tell stories. It's pretty normal. Well, let's get back to the story. Verse 28 says, this was a demon-possessed man. Literally, the text says he was demonized, which means that this man is under the influence to some degree of demonic control. And it's so bad that people don't even want to go near these tombs where these demon-possessed men are hanging out. Th these guys are dangerous. They're a threat to themselves. They're a threat to other people. Now, you might be here this morning, and you tend to be a little skeptical about the existence of demons. Let me just tell you, if you're a follower of Jesus, Demonic, the demonic realm is all over the Scriptures. Now, just because we can't see them does not mean they don't exist. The New Testament is quite clear that we do have an enemy named Satan. He really does have minions called demons, and they're all over the pages of our New Testament. And Jesus here in this story comes face to face with supernatural evil. Look with me at verse 29. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? 
Isn't it interesting that the first story we looked at ends with the disciples wondering, who is this guy? And the second story begins with demons saying exactly who this guy is. He is the Son of God. These demons profess two key truths about Jesus. Number one, you notice they say He is the Son of God. Number two, they admit that there's a time coming when Jesus will cast Satan and his demons into a place of eternal torment called hell. They know what awaits them. But brother, sister, friend, let me plead with you. There's a lesson to be learned even from these demons this morning. Good theology does not make you right with God. Having good theology is great. We should have it. We should strive for it. We should study our Bibles. We should study systematic theology. We should study church history. We should study New Testament. We had a great New Testament class this morning. If you haven't gotten involved in a Sunday school class, I hope you'll get involved. It's going to be phenomenal. We should do all of those things. But listen, brother, sister, friend, you can have all the right theology and still hate Jesus. That's exactly what these demons did. James chapter 2, verse 19, James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Believing right facts about Jesus is not the same thing as saving faith in Jesus. I had a professor in seminary who used to say, don't be a tadpole Christian. You know what a tadpole is? It's all head and little else. A tadpole Christian is somebody who knows a lot of facts about Jesus, can ace the theology exam, but he doesn't live it out. She doesn't actually follow Jesus, even if she knows about him. Don't be like that, friend. The story continues in verse 30. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged Jesus, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And Jesus said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Now, this is a weird twist to this story, isn't it? Pigs going off a cliff into the water and drowning? Why do the demons want to get into the pigs? What's going on with pigs and demons? I'm not here to answer all those questions this morning. I do think this weird twist of the story teaches us three really important lessons. First of all, Satan and his demons are filled with murderous rage against anything and everything that God loves. God loves pigs. That might seem strange to you, but He created them, didn't He? And He knew that we would get delicious bacon and sausage from them. Praise God for that. But Satan and his demons, they hate everything that God loves. 
If we've seen anything in our world over the past few decades, it's that Satan is doing everything that he can to twist everything that God loves. He's been doing it for thousands of years. That's what he does. He hates what God loves. Second important lesson from this twist in the story is that Jesus values people more than animals or property. A lot of people look at this story and the PETA folks get really, you know, bent out of shape. Why would Jesus let the demons kill all those pigs? Well, I don't have an answer for you other than to say that Jesus loves you more than pigs. He loves you more than thousands of pigs. And some people say, well, this was a farmer's livelihood. Sure it was. Jesus loves you more than your career. Jesus loves you more than your money. Jesus loves you more than an entire economy. Jesus loves you more than all the institutions we could build. He loves people more. You see that clearly in this story. And the third lesson we see in this story, in this twist in the story, is Jesus has the upper hand. Listen, there's no doubt in this story who's in charge. These demons are begging, please, Jesus, please just throw us into the pigs. And Jesus, he gives them one word, go. It's obvious who's in charge. Jesus has absolute authority over the supernatural world. Absolute. There is no contest who's in charge in this story. It's Jesus. And you might think, if you're a skeptic in the room this morning, you might think that if you could see a story like this, if you were there and you witnessed it, it would be easy for you to believe. Maybe that's the difficulty for you, friend. It's you've, ne- you've never seen a miracle. You've never seen somebody get a demon cast out of them. You've never seen somebody calm a storm. Yeah, you read about it in a book, but how can I trust it? If I could just see it with my own eyes, then I would believe. Not so fast. Look at the next verse. Look at verse 33. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Seeing is not believing. It is possible to see the wonder-working power of Jesus and still reject Him. One commentator said, all down the ages, the world has been refusing Jesus because it prefers its pigs. Is that you, friend? What are you preferring over trust in Jesus? Jesus has absolute authority over the natural world, Jesus has absolute authority over the supernatural world. For the Christian, that is incredible comfort. But perhaps you might wonder, what if Satan's already gained the upper hand in my life? What if my life has already been ravaged by Satan and his demons? Is there any hope for me? Yes, you can have hope, Christian, because Jesus also has authority over the spiritual world. Jesus has authority over the spiritual world. Look with me at chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. 
And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Capernaum was the the home base for Jesus' ministry, so Jesus is back in Capernaum. And and once again, Mark 2 and Luke 5 give us more details about this particular story. You probably remember, maybe even you heard it in Sunday school. A story about a paralyzed man on a mat carried by friends, and and they go to some house in Capernaum, and and it's filled with people. They can't get in the door. You remember? These guys, they don't turn away. They're resolved. They're committed. So they climb up to the roof, and then they start digging the roof, and, and Jesus is there on the main floor, and all this ceiling tile rubble and stuff is falling down on them, and, and they lower this man on his mat down into the house right in front of Jesus. That's this story. All those details are important, but Matthew, he eliminates all of that just to highlight the fact that Jesus has absolute authority over the spiritual world. Look at what happens when this man is lowered down in front of Jesus. Verse 2, second half. When Jesus saw their faith, that's presumably the, the friend's and the paralytic himself, when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son. What's he going to say next? You're healed. No. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Isn't that strange? You have to wonder if perhaps the paralyzed man is thinking, well, I mean, that's nice and all, Jesus, but I really came to, to get healed, right? I want to walk again. My sins are forgiven. Why are, you, why are you doing that? Why aren't you healing me? Jesus is teaching us a lesson. Brother, sister, friend, this is an absolutely crucial lesson. Every problem that humans face is only a symptom of our greatest problem. All the problems in society are only symptoms of our greatest problem. What's our greatest problem? It's the problem of sin. Listen to me, brother, sister, friend. Even if everything in your life is going great today, you are not okay. You have a spiritual problem called sin. If everything in your life is going wrong today, no matter how messed up and upside down your world is today, you have a problem that's even greater than that. It's the problem sin. The prophet Isaiah says this in Isaiah 59, verse 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Dear friend, your sin separates you from God. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, you're thinking, well, I'm not really that bad. I mean, I'm certainly better than the the guy sitting next to me or the lady sitting next to me. Not really that bad. Remember, though, dear friend, the standard is not how much better you are to the person near you. The standard is not you versus the Highland Park shooter or you versus some horrible dictator somewhere. The standard is you versus the law of God. How do you measure up against that? The law of God is summarized in the Ten Commandments. So just think of some of the Ten Commandments. The 
eighth commandment says, you shall not steal. Have you ever stolen anything, friend? Well, maybe you've never robbed a bank or a train or anything like that, but have you ever stolen anything? Even something of, of small value, some quarters out of your mom's purse or a can of Coke out of a gas station. It might have been something of really small value, but even that is theft, and in the eyes of God, you're guilty. Or the ninth commandment says, you shall not lie. Have you ever told a lie, friend? Have you ever spoken something that wasn't true, ever? And if you say, no, I don't think I've done that, you've just done it. Now, that's just two of the Ten Commandments. James says if you break one of them, you're guilty of all of them. If you compare yourself, dear friend, against the law of God, guess what? You're 0 for 10. You're guilty. You are guilty, and therefore, you are separated from God. Your sins separate you from God. That means you have a big problem. Now, it's not a problem you can see with your physical eyes, is it? Now, this, this man, this paralyzed man, his life's not going really well. He's paralyzed. He can't get himself to Jesus. But let's suppose he was a rich man with all sorts of the blessings that the world provides. He might feel like he's doing pretty well, but spiritually he's not. And the same is true for anyone in this room that does not have their sins forgiven by Jesus. Now, if you go back to verse 3 of chapter 9, some of the scribes get a little bit out of shape that Jesus has forgiven this man's sins. And they say to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Now, to get a, your mind around what's going on here, just imagine that when the service is over, you sneak up here onto the stage and you steal Cameron's guitar. Okay, there it is right there, so you know your path is clear. You head up there, out the door, safety team, just keep an eye on the guitar after service. And let's just say you do. You get away with it. Cameron was looking around. His guitar is gone. You steal the guitar. But I come up to you. I see you in the parking lot with your guitar, about ready to, with the guitar, about ready to load into the car. And I say, brother, sister, I forgive you. It's okay. Now, Cameron would rightly be upset. I don't have any authority to forgive a sin that you commit against somebody else, right? Now, Cameron can forgive you if he wants to, but I don't have any right to forgive you for something you did that wasn't against me. And so this is what the scribes are thinking. This man, this man, this teacher is forgiving this paralyzed man's sins? How can he do that? The other gospel writers say that they say to themselves, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, they're partly right. God could forgive the theft of Cameron's guitar. God can forgive a sin that you commit against anybody. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Matthew's whole point is that Jesus is God. That's his point. The story continues. Look with me at verse 4. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, there's another evidence of his divinity, isn't it? He knows the thoughts of men. He knows your heart. And he says, why do you think evil in your hearts? 
For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus' question is not about which, which phrase is easier to verbalize, but which claim is easier to prove. It's easy to say to somebody, your sins are forgiven. Because there's no way to prove it, right? It's not like forgiven people get a, a shiny red F on their forehead or something like that. There's no physical way to tell when someone's sins are forgiven. It's a spiritual reality. But if you go around to people that can't walk, you say to these two ladies on the front row, you can walk. Drop your crutches and go. Take the cast off and go. If I start saying that, I better be able to back it up, right? So Jesus says, to prove to you that I can do the thing that only God can do, I'm going to do the thing that you can see. And then he says to this paralyzed man, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Jesus proves he has authority over the spiritual world by doing something in the natural world that they could see. I'm going to prove to you I can forgive sins by healing this paralyzed man. Brother, sister, you may not always feel forgiven. There will be days when you will feel the weight of unbearable shame. But if your faith is in Christ, and if He truly died on that cross, and if He cried out, it is finished, then even on the days when you don't feel forgiven, you are forgiven because your faith is in Him. He has absolute authority over the spiritual world. And there will never be a sin held against you that Jesus has forgiven. Ever. If you are forgiven, you are fully forgiven. Verse 7 tells us once again the response to Jesus' authority. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Once again, the response to Jesus' authority is fear. First it was the disciples wondering, who is this guy? Then it was the Gentiles asking Jesus to leave. Now the Jews fear and give God glory, but most of them see Jesus as nothing but a mere man. They glorify God, but they don't glorify Jesus. How are we supposed to respond? Christian, how are we supposed to respond to this authority? Let me suggest three applications in closing. Number one, recognize Jesus' authority. Recognize His authority. Don't be like those who saw Jesus heal the paralyzed man and didn't believe in Jesus. There are some of you in this room that are not followers of Christ. I don't know for all of you what your hang-up is, 
But let me plead with you to answer this question, who is Jesus? Who is he? If you're visiting with us this morning and you don't know and you want someone to walk through that question with you, there'd be countless people in this room that would happily sit down with you over a a few days or weeks and study through one of the gospels with you and help you to answer that question. Who is he? If he really is the one with this incredible authority, then you need to recognize that authority before it's too late. You will recognize it one day, friend but Jesus invites you to recognize it today. Number two, submit to Jesus' authority. Submit to His authority. Don't be like the Gentiles and the Gadarenes who who saw Jesus' power to cast out demons and pushed Him away. Dear friend, if you believe that this Jesus really is the one with absolute authority in the world, then submit to it. Submit to him. Every aspect of your life belongs to him. As the theologian Abraham Kuyper once said, there is not one square inch in the entire realm of human existence over which Jesus does not cry out, mine. You must submit to his authority. And finally, Rest in his authority. Don't be like the disciples in the boat. You might feel like you're a little faith right now, but learn to grow in your faith. Learn to be at peace amidst the storm, trusting even if you have no idea how it's going to work out. Trusting that it will because Jesus is in control. The greatest evidence of Jesus' power and control is what Jesus accomplished on the night that he was betrayed. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and I'm going to invite those of you with children and PBC kids, when we stand and sing in just a moment, to go and get your kiddos so all of our volunteers can be a part of celebrating communion with us. Let me pray for us And we'll stand and sing, and parents will go and get your kiddos. Let's pray.